This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome into the Salt City Hoops show. My name is Andy Larson. I'm the managing editor of saltcityhoops.com. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. I'm alongside associate editor here, Ben Dowsett. That's a new title for you. Congratulations. Thank you, and thank you for bestowing it upon me. Uh, of course. <laughs> when you're the leader, you can do whatever you want. Exactly. You know, no, there are no boss men telling you, no, Ben Dowsett can't succeed. I believe in you, Ben. I always have. I always will. It's good that you believe in me, Andy. Um, so, so you know, you heard in the intro that tonight's show, uh, that the show is usually two hours. Tonight's show will be just one hour uh, due to the Utah basketball game coming up with you at 8 o'clock. Uh, Bill Riley on the call on that. So that's a, that's as, a season opener? Uh, it's an uh, exhibition season. Oh, ex- still for okay. The okay. So, yep, that, that will be taken over for us at 8 o'clock, which means we've got an hour solid to talk about what was really one of the best jazz games in, I think, Energy Solutions Arena slash Delta Center history. Uh, and, and we'll get some historical perspective on that as well from uh, Kurt Cragthorpe will be our guest tonight. Uh, coming up in the next segment for you. He'll be giving us some historical perspective. Tell us how good that game was compared to some of the other regular season games in Utah Jazz and Energy Solutions Arena history. I mean, quite frankly, it was both you and I were at the game. You were there actually as a fan in the crowds with everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, even on press row, though, I got to say, the press got into a little bit too. Mm-hmm. How could you not with how exciting that game was last night? That from a crowd perspective, like, so So for reference, I was there last year when the Jazz played the Heat and they beat the Heat last year when LeBron right. was there. And so it's a big deal. It's you, you beat LeBron and the whole thing. Nothing like the atmosphere. And of course, the fact that it was later in the season and the Jazz's season was pretty much already finished last year by the time that game had happened. Different scenario and everything like that. But, and, I, you know, I wasn't in the building for the Sundiata Gaines game a couple years ago, which maybe we'll talk about, but I, I definitely the most exciting atmosphere of any game I've been to, especially as a fan by far. Like, it was, uh, the, the, the place was electric. It was amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's one of those games that, and I have to say that I predicted it. I, 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 we've been talking on the show for two weeks and I'm looking forward to this LeBron James Utah Jazz game. And I was telling you for weeks that it would be as exciting as an NBA game yep. gets. Yeah. You were right. You I were never right. lie. Book it. <laughs> I should not actually boast that much because we, we issue way too many predictions on this show for me to get called out on the wrong ones. <laughs> true, true. But no, I mean, that was, it was a good call. And you know what? For whatever reason, the Jazz just seemed to always play LeBron's teams tough. And this one you could kind of see coming, though. The, the, the Cavaliers have not looked good. They continue to not look good last night. And the Jazz have been playing well enough to keep up with a team like this, especially when the effort levels are so different, which they clearly were. It's true. And, and to be fair, the Cavs were on the second night of a back-to-back. That too. That being said, it's still a big win for the Utah Jazz. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and go through it. You know, this because it was such an exciting game. We want to basically use the whole show on it. I want to first start out with kind of the play-by-play and kind of the most exciting plays of last night's game. The first one, the big notable one, the one that showed up in the in the Sports Center highlights was that Hayward chase down block. May have been a goaltend. Um, I watched it about five times today when I was rewatching the game. That was so close. You could call that either way. Maybe there's a view from on the court that was a little better, but the the above basket view that I saw and the side view, 
it's really hard to say either way, honestly. It's nearly simultaneous. I mean, I, I think it probably was a goaltend, but uh, and apparently, and this is a quote from LeBron James, that he actually asked the referees about it before halftime. The referees looked at it at halftime and then came back to LeBron after halftime and said, yes, we got that one wrong. We felt it was a goaltend. For A, LeBron to admit that that happened after the game, which he just lost, you know, despite this block that happened in the first half. And, and I'm sure that he was asked about it. You know, that's yeah. how these sort of things work. Yeah. But that then the referees, who we will we will talk about much uh, for the rest of the show, because there were, there were some questionable refereeing decisions. Um, for the referees to then look at it ha- at halftime and then admit that to LeBron, to me, doesn't sound right. I mean, as, as a referee, doesn't that kind of get in the way of your impartiality for the rest of the game? I really think it does. And you wonder whether or not that's standard practice. Like you want, or and you want, if it is, you wonder which guys sort of get. Is it that like a star player only type thing? Like guys who really know these refs can get them to do that, or whether it's something you know. If any player asks, like, "Hey, look at that at halftime and tell me, will they always do it?" Like, yeah, I, I feel like if if Rudy Gobert came up to one of the refs at before halftime and was like, "Hey, check that one play because I want," I don't think they would look it up for him. I don't know, like, yeah. It seems, yeah, it seems a little bit unfair, and it seems it seems a little bit to contradict certain certain parts of the ethics of being a referee. Like maybe, maybe after the game, and I don't even know how I necessarily feel about that. You got to own the call that you make, and replays available for certain parts of the game, not that part of the game. Got to make the call that you make. I like them looking at it after the game because it allows you to know, you know, when you succeeded and when you failed, right? Yeah. Uh, when you're still in the middle of a of a certain game, that's where you can use what has already taken place for the first half and and kind of use the to twist it make these makeup calls so exactly. to speak in the other team's favor and, and that's that's not right to me I, I don't telling, think that's the right Le- thing to do you telling lebron that maybe gives him the idea that now he's owed one or that now he deserves right. one going forward type of, yeah that's absolutely that's not right uh, and and it kind of showed with how many free throw i mean cleveland had 40 free throw attempts last night the jazz had 22 and, and got a lot of the, uh, let's see four or six of those 22 just in garbage right time the as the Cavs were trying to you know wiggle away wiggle their way back into the game yeah. um otherwise we'd have a 20 plus free throw advantage in this game i i, I don't know that that's wildly unfair um you know i i do think the jazz fouled the Cavs a lot especially with kind of their iso setup where they weren't getting open shots they were just kind of driving to the hole and see what happens yeah but uh, again i i just wonder how much the referees were involved in that game yeah and and you know i'm i'm there were a few, several of those were mistakes by the Jazz. Uh, Trey Burke had, I, I, like I said, I rewatched the game this afternoon, and Trey Burke had about three of those five fouls that were kind of foolish, uh, trying to come around screens, be too aggressive, and things like that. Um, but you do wonder, you do, and and do we have a, a clip here? No, uh, we're gonna wait until after the game-winning shot. So oh, nice. hold up. Okay, well let's do that. Yeah. Um, well, so our next play though in in our game sequence is the um, Hayward's defense on LeBron's baseline drive. So about thirty seconds left. Jazz are up by two, but LeBron and the Cavaliers have the ball. LeBron gets a ball, ISOs up against uh, Gordon Hayward, and drives baseline. And Gordon, with his improved bulk, shuts him down. Yeah. Absolutely gets in the way, stops LeBron's momentum, holds onto the ball, blocks the shot. And, and we haven't seen anybody defend LeBron James like that in a, in a Jazz uniform. I, I can't remember a single time in, in an important play like that 
where somebody stopped LeBron James to that extent. Paul George, I think last year a couple of times or maybe the year before. But, but Paul again. George is Paul George. Yeah. I mean, Paul George is, is an elite wing defender. If Gordon, I, I do think Gordon Hayward has that sort of potential if he wants to do that. You know, And to be fair, he's carrying a big load on the offensive end for the Jazz. It's hard to ask him to do both things. But I, I, for him to shut down LeBron like he did in that, critical of a situation was was a big step in in my mind huge and you know th- it, these types of things are tough to quantify which is why sometimes the folks down my sort of analytics road will occasionally scoff at you know that was a huge moment for him mentally yeah. when you say things like that but there's no question that there is value to that maybe we can't mathematically calculate what that value is but that's that's a, the, the way Gordon Hayward played last night overall that play and a couple of others of course the last one that we're going to get to in just a second being being just just huge things for him going forward you know he signed a big contract for a lot of money and whether or not people talk about that's you know of course he's going to say anytime anybody asks him he's going to say it's not on my mind it's not what I'm thinking about but it's got to feel good to to make some of the doubters look a different way or even just to feel to yourself like you know what yes I deserve this I'm I'm here doing what I'm supposed to be doing I thought it was really great yeah and you know LeBron had a good game last night he was eight for 18 you know that's not above 50 percent but it's still nice the best part was that he did get to the free throw line 12 times mm-hmm. Um, and he was limited to only three rebounds and four assists for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So, you know, it was a, it was a good game for LeBron. It, he brought the team back at the end. Obviously, he hit the three-point corner three um, as the Jazz were up that four. Insane. That was The <laughs> angle on that shot, like, I... <laughs> Uh, someday I'll know how he made that physically. How he made that shot. It it doesn't seem like the physics should work. You're yeah. right. Yeah, that was that was a completely insane shot. And then so after that, the the Jazz are up one. They foul Alec Burks, uh, who barely gets it across the half court line in time. And uh, Alec, to his credit, makes all four of the free throws in the last minute, to... which were his first four free throws of the game. Completely wow. completely cold that. going into those. That was yeah. I was really really impressed by that. And am I? I think between he and Hayward on the season so far have missed one free throw. That's correct. That's that's a good number, <laughs> even through five games. That's good. Yeah. Um, and then so Jazz are up three. LeBron comes down and draws this foul on uh, Derek Ugh. Favors. So Derek oh. basically pump fakes with three seconds left, gets Derek Favors up in the air, and then leans into Derek. After traveling. After traveling. So, yeah, okay. Yeah, let's start putting in the the opinion part of this. Although, I, watching it again, I do not think there's any opinion to that. I think he absolutely traveled. He lifted up both feet after already giving his pivot. He reestablished his pivot foot, like, clearly. Like, I didn't have to watch a replay to see it. I could see it in real time. Okay, so that's not a good sign for you, Mr. James Capers, who, by the way, was was one of the referees that I questioned in the first half of tonight of last night's game. And then he made that call which gave LeBron James to give three free throws to tie the game. So first of all, I, I do think he traveled in order to get into position to mm-hmm. draw that foul. But then second of all, in my mind, and not in my mind, on the video, <laughs> yeah. Derek Favors is on the ground completely vertical, as vertical as you can be, and LeBron James throws his body into him and gets that foul. And, and quite frankly, for James Capers to miss both of those calls in the way that he did is is incredibly discouraging for someone who's not a LeBron James fan. Let's or, put it that or, way. For, or for someone who's not a fan of big star players getting calls all the time. Right, because truthfully, the Jazz deserve that to win that game without having to need Gordon Hayward's heroics at the end. Yeah, they, they, were, the better, they were a better team. Yeah, they were. I mean, talking. I mean, we'll get into some of the things about who was a better team, but the Cavs' performance did not deserve a win last night on its own. 
uh, against you know, anybody. Against anybody, regardless of yeah, regardless of how well the Jazz played last night, and I think they did play la- incredibly well. I just don't see any way that they deserve to have the game come down as close as it did. And you know, watching uns- the basketball on the floor, not even I, I'm throwing in my fandom a little bit a little as bit. a Jazz fan, but I, I just it's no, but I don't I don't think you're wrong. And and there were a number, there were a couple instances. There was one play I can't remember whether it was late in the first half or early in the second where LeBron had uh, LeBron tried to drive on I believe it was on Alec Burks and had a layup where he he kind of lofted it like a foot over, like a little push floater halfway between a layup and a floater. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And the whistle was about two seconds late. I know you don't like these late whistles. Um. I have my own opinions on them generally, but that one was one that was like he clearly, clearly called it because LeBron freaked out. After there wasn't a call, LeBron landed and looked around and waved his arm and did the whole thing that he did, and then the whistle blew. And you you just you really don't like to see that kind of stuff, especially when it's the star players because we're so used to that happening. Yeah, look, I mean, in my mind, late calls are, are a terrible thing because that's when the referee's mind gets in the way of kind of that split second reaction that really should drive their calls. They in my mind, if a referee sees if a foul happens or not, he should blow the whistle immediately and not wait to see if a shot was made or missed and or and, and take that into account into his yeah. into his ideas because honestly he's gonna say, Oh, LeBron missed that shot, he must have been fouled. Whereas, you know, if Torrey Murray misses that shot he, you know, says play on. Yeah. Oh, I think there's almost no question. And when you, so I, my opinions on that are mixed. I agree, especially those types of calls, like the one I just described, late whistle. I, I really don't like it. I think there are times, like for example, you know, if you're if you're the, the high referee and a team runs like a double high pick where they bring two guys up to pick for the ball handler, you've got to look at whether or not both guys feet are shoulder width apart or more. Whether both guys did any leaning. Whether both guys were fully standing there. If you need an extra half beat to process everything your brain just saw. I think that's okay, but it, like you're saying, in the situations like that, I don't like it. My biggest pet peeve, and I saw several of these last night as well, a couple from James Capers himself, because I, after a while, started watching him specifically on the yes. court. I really hate when uh, the referee who is not the closest to the play that is going mm-hmm. on makes the call. And I saw that happen like seven or eight times just today rewatching the game where there's a referee standing three feet away with a perfect line of sight to what's going on. And the guy on the baseline across the court who's got with two players guys in between. with players in between them goes ahead and, and blows the whistle. Yep. I hate that. You like First of all, what's that saying to the rest of your refereeing crew? Like, What are you saying right. to your partner there? I don't trust your judgment even though you're way closer than me. That bugs me. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right, and that it bugs me too. And and heck, we could talk about all, uh, NBA refereeing all day, and and we probably will on this show at some point. Yep. Um, if one of these calls goes against the Jazz, but nevertheless, <laughs> after this, there was a great, tremendous moment for the Utah Jazz and Gordon Hayward last night. Gordon Hayward, of course, hit the game-winning shot from about two feet in front of the Sundiata Gain spot four years it was ago. Really close, honestly. Uh, and and. As uh, Craig Bullerjack described it, Bedlam in Salt Lake City. Bed- I, I did, honestly, that because of the, of course, they can't just keep the crowd volume on the TV as loud as it actually is in real life. Right. But that, that I, I, like I said, I've said it three times already, watched the, rewatched the broadcast today, did it no justice for how insane the place actually was. <laughs> you couldn't hear anything when they did the Gordon, the Gordon Hayward interview afterwards that where they play it over the loudspeakers, didn't hear a word. Not, even, not even the very ending part. Let's go ahead and listen to that Gordon Hayward oh, interview. Good, I can hear it. Because, uh, yeah, I, uh, Steve Brown t- tried to talk to him, and, and honestly, we didn't get to hear it because we were at the game, but watching the replay, his reaction was actually really cool. Some of the most emotion Gordon Hayward's ever shown as a jazz man. Let's listen to it. Man, listen to this, man. That's crazy. We did it for these guys, man. We, we let our lead go, but 
some big shots. Man, it's a good feeling. Good feeling. I, I have very rarely seen you speechless, but I think that's where you are right now. Yeah, man. I mean, it's exciting. So exciting. Oh, hey, these guys gave it to us right here. What does that say about this basketball team? Man, we, I think I think we're competitors, man. Uh, we fight till the end, and uh, le we left it all out there tonight. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. That audio courtesy Root Sports for us. But uh, that Gordon Hayward uh, interview, uh, we haven't heard that emotion from him ever, I he don't was, think. He was totally I mean, that's more emotion than, than the Too Big Yo rap video. <laughs> and if you can throw more more emotion in that moment than in a rap video, then I mean that's that's probably the highlight of Gordon Hayward's life. Maybe you know he hit that uh, state championship high school game winning shot. Yeah, and that has got to be pretty cool. But you know it it doesn't get that much better than what happened last night. You don't think he's had a League of Legends moment that's been, <laughs> that's been far more uh, glorious than that one? Well, the great thing is that he live streams when he plays, so you can actually watch Gordon Hayward, and, oh, and right. it is not interesting. Oh, okay. I, I would recommend that against it. Okay. We've got a few minutes, though, to talk about just kind of general thoughts about the game after, after completing that play-by-play -play, um, of the most exciting highlights. First of all, I thought Derek Favors and, and the front line for the Jazz showed a lot last night. Uh, you know, and that's Derek Favors. Ennis Cantor played well, especially offensively in the first quarter. He had 11 and, points in the first quarter, yeah. Right, and, and got the Jazz out to that big lead, which they eventually held on to. And then Trevor Booker in the fourth did things that uh, no other Jazz man could do or, or has done for this Jazz team in in several seasons. Yeah, he was the the even with the flagrant, which of course isn't a positive thing, and was definitely a flagrant. A flagrant, by the way. Uh, mm -hmm. He the the energy and kind of the uh, you, when he went back to the bench, they were showing it up on the jumbotron. I remember the rest of the team was so stoked, even though they knew that that was probably a, a flagrant foul that was getting called. Gobert was jumping all over the place and doing the thing where they push each other and everything, where they're really excited. You know, that I really love the energy that he brought, and he was able to come in and kind of. Uh, limit Kevin Love a little bit where Cantor was having a little bit of trouble with him in the fourth quarter there. Yeah, I, I think Kevin Love got a lot of open shots that he missed last night. He was only two for ten. He did. I Trevor Booker, the, though, I think did a better job. The Cavaliers as a team were shot under 40% on their uncontested field goals. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's non-ideal, obviously, of if which, you're the Cavaliers. Of which they had way fewer than the Jazz, though. Well, okay, so let's talk about these Cavaliers' offensive problems, because not only are they missing shots, and I think that was a lot of why they did only have six assists last night, but they, they also just weren't passing the ball. I mean, they ended up with six assists, which just a few stats for. That's the franchise low for Cavaliers history, and there have been a lot of bad Cavaliers teams. That's the uh, franchise low for Jazz allowed assists in a game. That's the lowest in an NBA game since 2012, when Portland put up, I believe, five. Uh, and so the and the Cavaliers only completed 269 passes compared to 421 for the Jazz. The Jazz had almost 50% more passes than the Cavaliers. Uh, they have the ball for the same amount of time. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the way basketball works, it's about 50-50. You shouldn't be able to pass that many more times than your opposition. I think this isn't soccer. I think even potentially the wildest critics of this Cavaliers team coming into this season could not have... You could have forecast a lot of these issues. You could have forecast that they were going to have trouble on defense. Like, right. you could have forecast even last night they're going to have trouble with the Jazz's front line. They don't have a big front line. The Jazz do. They're, you could you, you could see that coming. What I don't think anyone could have seen coming to at least this degree was this team's inability to even 
up here to notice that there are other players on the court. Kyrie yeah. Irving had 34 points and zero assists. That's, and that's seven quarters in a row for him without any assists. Ooh, I mean, that that's it's really it's kind of crazy to look at. Every, people who listen to me or write, read me a lot know I'm a big LeBron fan, so I do watch the, the Cavaliers really closely, and I've been somewhat shocked at, at just how, and there was an article today about how maybe LeBron, or maybe that was yesterday, about how LeBron is going to kind of take a more passive stance leadership-wise and, and let the guys like Kyrie and Deion, Deion Waiters make their mistakes so that they learn from it. I don't know if that's going to work. Guys. <laughs> like you might have to get in there and have a word with these guys because they they just don't appear to have a clue. And I, I, David Blatt so far as a coach has not impressed me. The sets those team that team is running. I understand they want to run a Princeton offense, which for those who don't know emphasizes a lot of off ball cutting, a lot of lot of essentially randomness. Like it leaves a lot of the decisions up to the players on the court. And you would think with this Cleveland team, cool, they got a real a bunch of really smart offensive players, including perhaps the smartest one of all time. You should do that, but it's just not working. They're not running pick and rolls. There's a reason why everybody runs so many pick and rolls is they're awesome and they're, they, and work. they work. And yeah. you've got three of the best pick and roll players in the league in Kyrie, LeBron, and Love. Every time they ran that LeBron Love pick and roll last night, either LeBron got to the hoop or Love got a three, like every single time, but they don't keep running it. I don't understand what they're doing over there at all. I do think the Princeton offense could work if like everybody was on the same page and this team had been together for three or four years. Yeah. I don't know how it'll work right I, away. I, yeah. And I think that ball movement, the lack of ball movement is displayed. So the Cavs only made one corner three last night. In other words, they're not getting open shots from their offense. Yeah. Or at least not you know the hyper-efficient ones, the, the corner threes. They did obviously get to the line a lot of times. But that being said, it doesn't. It, you know, you need both kinds of shots, I think, in order to have a really good offense. They got a long way to go. I, I also want to talk about, first of all, and we're going to have Kurt Crabthorpe on on the other side of the upcoming break, uh, kind of a, giving us this game in historical perspective a little bit. In my mind, it's probably the second or third best jazz game I've ever been to. It's number one for me because, like I said, I, w- <laughs> I wasn't at the Cindyata game, and uh, I wasn't—I was too young, obviously, to be at any of the, the the games in the '90s or anything. I also want to judge your friends. Yeah, yeah. So I have. Uh, so I came with my my girlfriend Laura, which, by the way, it was her first ever NBA basketball game. That's which a is pretty good one. It doesn't get better from that. I told her that they're not all going to be like that. <laughs> she didn't believe me, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, no. So I brought two of my other friends who will remain unnamed, and. Both of them, with the Jazz leading by six points with a minute and a half left, departed. Now, I I have you been You can't assu- do that. I have been assured that they didn't get out of the building. It doesn't matter. I you agree. stay in your seat, not in your seat, standing in front of your seat yeah. in a, in a six-point game. Look, that game's not over. And if there's anything, again, that we've learned about Jazz and LeBron games, it's that they're coming down to the wire. Yep. They're coming down to the last ten seconds. Uh, uh, I mean, what are you going to do? Is there any appropriate amount of punishment for them, or is, is that they missed out on last night punishment? Enough? I I think it's just the fact that they had to miss that. One of them is is like me, who's is a, a huge LeBron fan. Like in his case, potentially to the point where he was kind of rooting for Cleveland last year, last night ex- mm-hmm. instead of the Jazz. And I mean, he had he had to miss LeBron doing a couple fairly spectacular things. That corner three was spectacular, mm-hmm. and then he had to miss he had to miss one of the most exciting moments that's happened in that building in a really long time. I yeah. No shame. Guys. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm putting my two fingers together. Shame at yeah. you because yeah, you shouldn't have left. You know it's going to come down to it. You got to stay till the game's over. And it's LeBron. We're going. I've said I say this to everybody. Listen, we're going to look back on LeBron in ten years like we look back on Jordan now. Like when he came to town, I did whatever I could to see him, and I stayed the entire time. And that's that's my opinion at least. And, and it's remarkable that the Jazz are now nine and four at games at home against LeBron James. That's crazy. Let's, 
Let's go ahead and take a break. We'll have Kurt Cragthorpe of the Salt Lake Tribune coming up on the other side. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. Uh, Andy Larson alongside Ben Dowsett. We run Salt City Hoops, ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. On the line, we have Kurt Cragthorpe of the Salt Lake Tribune. He's been covering the Jazz. Well, I want to ask him, Kurt, how long have you been covering the Jazz for? Well, I can't uh, say it's been continuous, but uh, I do go back to Carl Malone's rookie year. I I was a beat writer, actually, for the Deseret News in that 85-86 season. So, so in one sense, I could claim almost 30 years, but but like I say, there was kind of a gap in the middle where I wasn't really too involved in the coverage, but we've been paying attention to him for about 30 years. And you've been to a lot of games then in, in the Jazz building, and, and you know, obviously in the Delta Center, but then even before that in the Salt Palace. Where does La- and, and Ben and I were talking about this, and, and we're relative newbies to this whole thing. So where does that Jazz game last night rank in terms of you know, the all-time great games that have happened for the Utah Jazz at home? Yeah, and again, my frame of reference skips a pretty glorious era, <laughs> which would be the uh, the finals years. But but for me personally, just on my own viewpoint, it, it's definitely in the top ten. I I just think the whole LeBron James aura elevates those games, and to have a, a true buzzer beater, it, it's just it's just pretty rare. I mean, you have a lot of close games in the NBA, but a, but a genuine buzzer beating shot is uh, pretty spectacular. How how many of those do you think, roughly, of course you can't just like count up in your head, but roughly how many game, buzzer beaters do you think you've even seen in that building at all? Yeah, not too many. I, I'm thinking of a, a Mo Williams shot uh, a year which or one, two ago. Which one was, was against that? Against the Spurs on ESPN, I believe, yeah, two seasons yeah, exactly. ago. I'm, I'm not, I'm drawing a blank on that one. You, I'm hope you, Luckily, you guys remember. Yeah, and... Uh, Another, otherwise, I mean, genuine. Again, there's been some shots with a second or two left, and the other team maybe even had a chance to try to match it. But, but a genuine at the buzzer walk off. I, I, I'd be curious to know how many times it happened. I, I'm going to say five is kind of a, a reasonable number. See, this is where we got got to use the analytics to actually count up these number of times because I, I think it's an interesting question. Uh, is there a website that, 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 <laughs> that tracks those kind Everything's of things? Everything's out there anymore, isn't it? Yeah. There, I bet you there is somewhere that you could honestly go and find it. Uh, so, Kurt, you know, having been around the Jazz for as long as you have, and whether or not it was continuous or not, and, and, and maybe there were certain periods in there where you were on maybe a different beat for a little while, how does this this locker room, this culture, the, this group of guys, when you putting them all together, not just the team themselves, but the coaching staff and Quinn Snyder and, and Dennis Lind, the whole way up, do do things feel a little bit different to you? Because I, you know, I was in the building last night, and like I, just from a fan's perspective, sitting on the upper bowl because I'm broke, the the. Things just even from the fan perspective felt different. The, the the way the guys were interacting with each other on the floor felt different. The, I, I I sent something out on a tweet last night that the Jazz were every single time out that there that there was the Jazz were staying huddled up together longer than the Cavaliers. That and you could tell that they were really dr- like actually going over stuff that mattered. Just a whole bunch of that little type of body language stuff. Do you, from your you know more on the ground perspective, do you see differences this year from other years? Yeah, and I think it all goes to Quinn Snyder. And, and, I, and it's, it really is a fascinating period in jazz history because 
there's kind of never been a fresh new coach coming in. It's always been a Frank Layden taking over in the middle of a season or a Jerry Sloan taking over in the middle of the season. And, of course, you had the whole Sloan era that skews everything in pro sports and makes the Jazz unlike virtually any other franchise. And then the, the Corbin period. And so so to have a, a, a guy come from the outside with a whole new set of ideas and to couple that with such a young, impressionable team, I think it just makes a, a dynamic unlike anything we've ever seen in jazz history. And so, so every observation you make along those lines really does have some validity to it because it, it just by its very nature, it is totally different. Did you do you think then that the 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 players are pretty much already on board with this? Like they're they're the you know the feeling out process or whatever has gone, and they're they're pretty well on the train. Yeah, and 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 what'll happen is that'll ebb and flow a little bit during the season. I mean, there there will be some down periods, maybe even next week's road trip if it doesn't go well. When when we question that at various times, but but I think the preseason showed that that Quinn's message is getting through and, and these guys are believing in him. Now, maybe a tiny bit of that was lost and more from the outside than the inside during those first two games of the regular season when we all started to wonder if if the preseason was kind of a mirage. But now that they've played well in the last three games and won two of them, I think we do start to see that, that, that this culture is is taking hold and that, that that Snyder really is on the verge of doing some big things with this franchise. It's going to take a long time, but but it's fun to have checkpoints last, like last night that that really encourage you that uh there's a hope here. Well, and and now we know also that those first two games were against really really good teams, so that, that it kind of makes things look a little better. Yeah, no doubt about it. Kurt, I want to ask you about a, a question. One of the reasons I like you and, and reading your writing so much is you ask really interesting questions of the players, the coaching staff, and you know, in these kind of media huddles and these media scrums. One of the ones that really stuck out to me this media day was when you were asking Dennis Lindsay, Quinn Snyder, and even some of the players what, the, how you go from just being only good to becoming great. And I was curious what the best answer you received was you know what were some of the most interesting answers you received from jazz management coaches players when you asked them about that step from good to great because obviously it's a step that the jazz have yet to make yeah and it, it really is a f- intriguing subject at, at least because because that's kind of what we're all wondering is which one of these guys is going to take that big step and so to answer your question pro- I, there, there wasn't a really a a definitive answer than any of those guys could come up with, and I, I realize it's kind of a vague question, but but I, I I think the one thing that did kind of resonate is 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 Quinn Snyder's just saying how rare greatness really is, and and uh, and what correlates to that is that it's possible that that maybe none of these guys becomes a truly transcendent player, but but maybe the the collective operation can kind of elevate each of them in a way that, that that makes the team succeed without having that that true genuine star. So so if anything, I 
I, I think it confirmed my basic belief is is that both for a team and an individual player, it's it's a lot easier to get from average to good than it is to go from good to great. And so, so for any of the current jazz guys to really make that huge leap will will, will require something extraordinary. I guess that's a natural follow-up question. As we see how Gordon Hayward's played through the first five games, and you know he is putting up numbers amongst the you know top ten, top fifteen players in the league, and, and uh, you know Derek Favors could be put in that category as well as, as somebody who's legitimately putting up numbers that that compare with the best of the big men in the NBA. Do you see either of those two guys being able to make that leap? I, I already through five games, I I think it's more possible than I would have believed even going into this season. And again, that's a small sample size in any conclusion you might want to draw. But but Favors, for, for whatever reason, I've always kind of been a, a skeptic of his talent ceiling. And it kind of all goes back to uh, when he first arrived from New Jersey and and they, the Tribune actually sent me down to cover the Nets' first two games with Darren Williams just because... He had been such a fixture with the Jazz, and as we all know, it was a big story to have him go somewhere else. And and what I came away with from being around the Nets for those two days was just just the consensus was that that they just didn't believe in Favors' future. And so I kind of used that as my default viewpoint of him. And and so he he really has grown on me, and his offensive game has expanded to to a point that there may be yet more yet to come. But I, I honestly didn't think he could get to this point as a, as an offensive player. So so that was a long way of saying that uh, Favors really does have a chance, and 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 Hayward is a classic case of a guy who. As the team gets better around him, he's going to continue to flourish. I think we all saw last year that he's not capable of, of being a, a a guy that can carry a team. But if you put him on a, on a team where there's a couple of, of players that are just as good as he is, or slightly better, that that he really responds well in that environment. I think the Butler team was a great example. Yes, he was the best player on the team, but the fact that they had some comparable guys allowed him to not only raise his game, but elevate the team. And I think potentially the same thing can happen with the Jazz. That's a good point. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us. we got to go to a break after this. But uh, again, this has been Kurt, Cra- Kurt Cragthorpe of the Salt Lake Tribune. Thanks again, Kurt. Glad to join you anytime. Thank you. I really thought that uh, Butler point was interesting, just in terms of, you know, like Hayward has been on these good teams and has been indeed the best player on these teams. But he's always, whenever he's been able to succeed, he's had a great coaching and great supporting cast of players around him. Were there any other NBA, like current NBA guys that were on that Butler team? I'm trying to, Um, I'm I'm off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, hey. I don't know if he's still in the NBA. He He was third point guard for Atlanta for part of last year yeah you know and i i think that's a great man and that's uh, kirk's got a really a, a just such a good viewpoint has anyone been around this team for he said it wasn't continuous but has anyone been around this team for that long at all uh dan roberts is the jazz P, pr announcer is the ah. pa guy sorry it's to me the name that comes to mind and of course jerry sloan's still hanging around jazz practices True. as well yeah 
On the other side of the break, though, we bring back the crazy trade idea of the week with a uh, suggestion from one of our longtime listeners, Clark Schmutz of SLC Dunk. So we've got that on the other side of the break for you. And we'll also be forecasting the upcoming week of jazz games. Jazz go on the road next week. But of course, before that, there's an a interesting matchup against the Dallas Mavericks on Friday. We'll talk more about that next. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. This is the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson. This is Ben Dowsett on the other side of the sh- on the other side of the studio. The lovely ESPN 700 studios. This is nice. I like. I always like this studio. A- and we have the lovely band that does um, "Like a G6" is the only <laughs> song I know by them, and I don't even know their name, but no I can, you know. Say the words like a G6 on the radio even, if I, I, if I even, so choose. Am I supposed to know that song? <laughs> I, I, yeah, you're a relevant youth. Uh, I'm a youth. I, maybe I still qualify as youth. I don't know that I qualify <laughs> as relevant as far as that pop culture stuff goes, but yeah. Fair enough. Well, regardless, we are bringing back something that we do in the podcast pretty frequently, the, the crazy trade idea of the week. And we, we had a good suggestion from a listener this time. Um, That's Clark Schmutz. He, he writes for SLC Dunk. Check out his work. Um, yeah, Clark we is actually, more than a listener. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's awesome. Um, we used to do a show together, actually, for SLC Dunk called The Clark and Andy Show, and, and it's a good time, but I would request that none of you go back and listen to the archives of that show. <laughs> um, I am doing that tonight. <laughs> regardless, he suggested this kind of interesting deal, actually, where the Jazz would trade a the expiring Ennis Cantor, uh, Ian Clark, who is also expiring, and Steve Novak, who does have one more season left um, after this one, for Iman Shumpert, plays for the New York Knicks, and Andrea Bargnani, um, Bargs. the former number one pick of the 2006 NBA draft. I, you know, I think it's a pretty interesting deal. They, there's a number of expirings, of course, changing. In fact, nearly everybody in the deal is an expiring. Yeah, and, so Bargnani, and literally everybody but Novak. So Bargnani's big contract is expiring at the end yeah. of this year. It could get the Jazz more cap space, mm-hmm. um, a, as well as Shumpert is a, is a restricted free agent at the end of the year. Just like all the other Cantor's. three are, right? Yeah, all the other three would be. Or no, Clark was a, a second round or a non drafted, right? So Correct. His, his salary situation is different. He he becomes unrestricted after this year, does he not? I believe so. Although I believe that it, he's just. He's mostly trade fire. Anyway. Sure. No, yeah. no offense, Ian, but in this particular situation, he's mostly a, an attached piece on the end of the what is the main trade. But the the three main pieces being what are honestly the two main pieces of that trade are Shumpert and Cantor going forward because Bargnani has very limited usefulness as an NBA player currently. His defense, guys, if we think that Ennis Cantor occasionally has some <laughs> lapses on defense, you do not want to be seeing Andrea Bargnani playing in his position instead. Now his maybe his shooting range is a little further than Cantor's, although this year not that much further and. I mean, he's just a lumbering, he really doesn't know what's going on defensively. Now, Shumpert, though, is a little bit interesting. What, are you, what do you think about Shumpert? Like, what do you, his overall game, like, he had a really terrible year last year by all standards, but so did the Knicks. That, do, do you think that he could be a player with a change of scenery that could really blossom? Maybe. So he's older than Cantor, which is the thing that scares me about this potential deal. And I, th- I think, ultimately, if you're going to keep one of those two guys, I'd rather cam- gamble on Cantor's youth. Mm-hmm. But Shumpert is interesting only because through his first five games this season, he's put up some really good numbers. He's put up an above-average PER, I believe 17.2 is the number I, I read. Um, and he's putting up 13.6 points per game. Sorry, 13.2 points per game in 28 minutes coming off the bench. Oh, sorry actually starting for the Knicks, um, playing 28 minutes a game. 
uh, and he's started to use more possessions. He's starting to actually look like an NBA player out there, which honestly I don't think you could say at this point last season. Um, he's or really, really good at defender. any point last season. And he is a really good defender. He's he's kind of almost the anti-Enes Cantor or the anti-Andrea Bargnani from that point of view, where yeah. he gives you much more defensively than he does on the offensive end. If he can actually put it together on offense, then you know you have an actually good kind of uh, 3 player. and D player that yeah. would make sense as a role player for the Jazz. What's he shooting from 3 this year? 68%. <laughs> wow, he really is. Yeah. And I mean, he's he's 35% career. Even in a down year last year, he only shot 33%. 35% is above league average. If he and keeps up the 68% three-point yeah, rate. We should do it. We should definitely do this deal. Now, um, and of course, then the, the, other, the thing to consider if you were the Jazz and were realistically entertaining a deal like this would be what you feel your, your future needs are going to be. Do you feel as though... The front line, if it were to lose Cantor, would be comfortable going forward. Do you see Rudy Gobert next year as a guy who could be an NBA starter or at least somebody who could pick up close to 30 minutes a night if maybe you started Booker and, and Favors instead? And on the on the flip side, do you feel as though you have enough wing depth or do you think that's a, an area that you might be able to willing, be willing to sacrifice a current asset to go ahead and pick up? You know, the Jazz did just this past offseason give some pretty hefty money to two wings. So right. you have to you have those are questions you have to ask. But Shumpert probably gets a smaller offer this year in restricted free agency than Cantor, right? I, you know, unless he keeps playing this well, I think you you have to say that. You know, obviously. The sixty eight percent from three, he'd get a decent deal if, he, <laughs> yeah. if he kept doing that. Oh, just the best three point shooter of all time. I mean, yeah, he would get a phenomenal deal. We've learned from <laughs> Kyle Korver that you should sign those guys to great to, yeah, to good deals. Absolutely. So I, I think it'd be something to consider at least. Do you do it? I don't. I don't think I do because. <sighs> I just I'm not ready to punt on Cantor yet. Uh, I'm, despite my concerns, which I think we all have, not ready to punt on him yet. That's fair. I, I'm more worried that the previous you know 200 games of Amon Shumpert are more representative of his skill level than the last five of the NBA of this season. That's a valid concern. <laughs> and so ultimately, I probably say no at this point. I, I do think how good you think Amon Shumpert is is the is the focus point of this deal. Yeah. Um. It, it's something that I would though evaluate nearer to the trade deadline once we have more evidence of where these guys are. True. And both Ennis Cantor, who we've talked about, is this, this put-up-or-shut-up year for him, mm-hmm. and Iman Shumpert, if he can keep it up, obviously won't keep up the 68% three-point shooting, but if he can continue to be a relevant offensive player as well as a defensive one, you have something there. Yeah, yeah, I think they would consider. They would at least have to consider. But I think you're right. Around more around a trade deadline when there's a little bit more to go off from both these guys would be more realistic. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, let's go ahead and look at the NBA schedule, uh, and in particular the Utah Jazz schedule for the next week until next Thursday. We'll, we'll be on the air for two hours again. Uh, first of all, Friday, tomorrow, the, da- the Jazz take on the Dallas Mavericks at home. I asked Gordon Hayward and Trey Burke about this, and they both kind of saw it as a revenge game for what happened last week in that blowout loss. They really got waxed, and Dallas has been waxing everybody. They've had so through four or five games, they've had one of the best offenses of all time. I actually did a post for B-Ball Breakdown, a little plug if you want to go check it out. I liked it. You should. It was, uh, it was, it, so it's on B-Ball Break- B-ballbreakdown.com. B-Ballbreakdown.com, correct. And it was on the Mavericks, and on whether or not this amazing start of theirs offensively is sustainable or not. Is it? No. Okay. <laughs> and it, it, honestly, it didn't it's take It's 68% free three-point shooting. That style of unsustainable, honestly. like It okay. didn't and it didn't take me writing the article for anybody who knows how to, to suss out those types of 
things to notice it. Right. They're shooting these percentages that are complete lunacy. Like their percentages with diff- they, we have these new sport view stats now on NBA.com. Mm-hmm. Any stats nerds got to go check those out. I can't talk too much about them because we're running out of time. But you can see defender distance from every shot taken in the league. Their percentage on shots with a defender very tight, so a defender within zero to two feet of the shooter, is like well over fifty percent, or at least it was when I wrote the article. Wow. I'm not. I think they played tonight, or I'm not sure if what their games have been since then, but. Not gonna continue. They're gonna be a great offense. They were the third best offense last year, and then they added Chandler Parsons, so they're gonna be good. Mm-hmm. But they're not gonna continue scoring like 120 points per 100 possessions, which is close to where they were at. Yeah, they have good offense players, and you know Dirk can make a lot of his shots when you have a defender within two feet. But the rest of the team, I'm I'm less certain. Yeah, and I'm interested to see what the Jazz do a little bit differently because I mean everyone on the Mavericks killed them last time. Dirk especially. What what did Dirk shoot like like 13 I, of 16 or something yeah. crazy like that? I'm interested to see if maybe Gobert plays a little more, if maybe they try running some doubles in certain cases, maybe a little bit of creative stuff. I have one thing I I wanted to say earlier and didn't get to it. I've really enjoyed how Quinn has blossomed into his coaching role in the last few games, and I think we might see start seeing more creative stuff like that. Gun to your head, do the Jazz win tomorrow? No. Okay. No, that's 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 good to know. I might say yes. I I bet the Jazz with Dallas on a back to back win that game tomorrow. I forgot Dallas was on a back to back. That's a big deal. I'll give, I'll no, give it a maybe. You've got to say no. You're I got to my, no. my head. I would still stay. With Sunday no. then Jazz go on begin their five game road trip to the East Coast to play the Detroit Pistons. Um, let's just go quickly through these games since we don't have a whole lot of time. Do you think that's a win or loss for the I Jazz? I think they can win that game. Yep. I think they, Detroit's playing better under this, under Stan Van Gundy. They've got a front line that's menacing just like ours. I think they can win that. I think the Jazz's guard and wing play But is a I lot don't better. think the Smith, Drummond, Monroe trio, I, I think that will shoot them out of the game offensively. Let's go on to the Pacers. That team's really bad right now. I think that's a game that the, could, the Jazz could win even if it's on the road on the back-to-back. Yeah, I was going to say the road back-to-back is going to make it tough, but on a neutral court, I would favor the Jazz currently. I think the Jazz are just a better team. Yeah. Um, and then finally, Wednesday, the Jazz take on the Hawks uh, in Atlanta. I think that's a loss. I think Atlanta is a good team. It's going to end third game in four nights all on the road. That Yeah, that one's going to be a tough one. So then after that, the Jazz take on two more games, the Knicks and the Raptors on that road trip. It'll be interesting to see. Like Kurt said, this is the first big road test for the Jazz. Uh, you know, It'll be interesting to see if the Jazz have those road bugaboos like they have in the past. Yeah, I, I think they're going to win at least one or two of these games. They're definitely, I don't think there's no chance they're going 0-4. No, I, I think that's fair, and, and that would be you know a good thing for the Jazz moving forward. Anyway, this has been the Salt City Hoops Show. Check us out. We're on saltcityhoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. You've been listening to the Salt City Hoops Show on ESPN 700.